my name is Christina James. Um, thank you all for coming along to the final panel uh, of the day, the grand finale. <laughs> um, a huge thank you to the always brilliant team at Nesta for inviting me uh, along this evening uh, and for curating such a thought-provoking and inspired program. My name is Kadeen James and I'm the creative technology lead at Hobbs3D. Hobbs3D is a digital foundry and immersive VR and AR studios. and We're based over in East London at Here East at the Olympic Park. I'm also the founder of the Immersive Kind Collective, which is a platform that brings together artists, creatives, data scientists, robotics engineers, academics, researchers, and citizens. I'm an activist, and I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion. I'm also part of Culture Declares Emergency. Since April 2019, over 600 arts and cultural organizations have declared a climate and ecological emergency. Inspired by the IPPC, Greta Thunberg, Global Youth Strikes, and the Sunrise Movement, David Attenborough, Extinction Rebellion, and more. Many of these organizations are MPOs. Many are located in local authorities that have also declared climate and ecological emergencies. Heat waves, Arctic fires, and permafrost melting sooner than expected make climate change part of our everyday conversations. A shift is underway in a cultural narrative of change. And I'm interested in how we might be able to use our collective intelligence to address the urgency of the climate and the ecological emergency and grasp the chance with the pivotal and vital role that arts and culture plays in bringing about societal changes needed to avert this disaster. Artists and organizations are already proving to be proactive innovators of systemic change, championing the power of arts and culture to reimagine vivid and compelling stories of how we might live with one another and with the planet. To solve the climate emergency, we clearly need a huge range of expertise, making progress in how we understand, how we think, how we act together. It's critical to solving some of the most complex challenges of our times. The climate emergency to prosperity and well-being, collective intelligence design has huge potential for societal benefits. I'm really interested in how we can use our collective intelligence to radically improve our democracies, bringing human rights abusers to justice, strengthening disaster relief, and helping us to overcome our differences post-Brexit. Can we bring together the power of machines to help us to analyze, predict, and to learn. And with the knowledge of crowds, can we really mobilize collective intelligence at scale? I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our panelists. Usman Haig on my left. Usman is the founding partner at Umbrellium, 
designing and building urban technologies that support citizen empowerment and high impact engagements in cities across the world. He's also developed the Thinkful um, platform, which is a search engine for the Internet of Things. Usman is a trained architect and has created responsive environments, interactive installations, digital interfaces and devices and dozens of mass participation initiatives throughout the globe. He's also um, an incredible um, musician, and we spoke at length about that um, earlier on. Um, so I'm, I'm honoured to be um, on, on, the, on this panel with you. We also have um, the formidable Florian uh, Ottokras, who is the co-founder and co-director at Random International. Florian graduated from Brunel University in 2002 and from the Royal College of Art in 2005. Art group Random International run a collaborative studio for experimental practice within contemporary art, founded in 2005 with Hannes Koch. Today, Florian and Hannes work with larger teams of diverse and complementary talent out of studios in both London and in Berlin, questioning aspects of identity, of anonymity in the post-digital age. The group's work invites active participation. Random International explore the human condition in an increasingly mechanized world through emotional yet physically intense experiences. The artists aim to prototype possible behavior environments by experimenting with different notions of consciousness, perception, and of instinct. Our panelists and I will be together exploring how an arts and creative perspective can help us to understand better how to design best for participatory processes. I would now like to introduce uh, Florian, who's going to um, talk about his work at Random International um, and his um, co co creative approaches. I'm then going to hand over to Usman, um, and um, I've got some questions that I'd like to ask. So, um, Florian, over to you. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you. Is nice. It's not mine, though. That's mine. That's mine. Okay. Uh, hello, my name is Flo Arkras. I'm a co-founder of Random International, and um, that's us. If you want to, if you want to see us digitally, um, so that's our team, and that's our team in London. We're about 20, 25. Um, people at the moment and um, and we are looking into um, into how we how we can how we can make objects that or how, how objects in the future will maybe 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 feel and how we actually are um, how we still carry on a lot of things from the from the from the past that we now um, that was that was very helpful 
back then, and now it, 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 there seems to be some, uh, the more things we create around us that are understanding and maybe understand us at some point better than ourselves, uh, that we, um, that, that uh, there's, uh, there's much more friction coming up, and we're trying to, uh, and we're trying to, uh, to work with that. Um, also, in terms of, uh, so we grow the ability to make things around us, um, but we're not really doing that a lot on a how are we going to react or how is this going to feel basis. And uh, we're also putting a lot of stuff in the world and we, we assume, oh, we can fix, you know, the bugs we can fix later. And a lot of things um, don't quite work like that anymore. Um, So, uh, so we got very early on. We got we got very interested by uh, things that work cross cross culturally, like things we cannot not see. Uh, like this is a let's see, uh, this is a stop frame. This is more stop frame than it should be, but it's a stop frame animation from the forties from um, a research couple, Haider and Simmel, and they were looking into how uh, how common it is to. Um, uh, to see things that are actually not there. So we're looking at this, and uh, if I would ask you, like ver probably very few would answer, oh, there's like a triangle that moves from the left to the right and then up and down. But everyone would be like, oh, yeah, this one is, this one is hiding and one is defending the other. So we'll, we all look at things like this, and we cannot but attach, uh, attach, attach meaning or like even agency. Um, so we did things like this, for example, at 65 64 mirrors and sit on the floor and you approach and they're really like they robotically follow you and it's purely through movement so we don't give any other other like um, visual clues purely through movement you have the impression that these these things are, are alive this is from 2000 2008 very um, very early on and it, w and it was very roughly it was very crudely done but it, like it was amazing how that how that actually um, how well that worked um, and then we looked at like um, biological movement, like you have you have swarms with like this inherent inherent beauty, but on the other side we have um, we have it's it, it's very hard to understand or it's to to predict what is happening. It's not really something like we think we work, but then there's actually a lot of studies uh, that show that we actually we have more than swarms uh, than we think, uh, particularly when it comes to collective decision. Making, so um, uh, so for example, during uh, during during uh, election com campaigns, is actually that the um, uh, this was from uh, from 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 Science Magazine. Um, uh, the models of voter swarms show that the minority influence, however strong, gets diluted to the point where the group goes with a majority decision, provided the electorate contains enough uninformed and undecided voters who simply copy the neighbors. Um, I don't think I need to give any references for this, but um, so, it's, so, it's, so there's, there's um, uh, it's amazing how predictable we actually are and how, does, how, that, uh, how that is used um, in architecture or, or making making predictions, so we then um, we then create objects like this. This is like this is a, uh, one of our swarm, 
studies, and it's a, it's a very, it's still based on one of the very early algorithms that we, uh, that we developed to, not, not, we, not we, we as humans developed to understand swarming behavior. And um, uh, again, there's, 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 um, it's, very, it's very raw, and you cannot but see that there's a, like, a, um, like, like a cloud or an object or objects moving inside. You cannot focus on the individual, individual um, uh, light points. So, it's, so in terms of how we see things, is very interesting for us. This was um, this was zoological. We should, we uh, we presented this in the roundhouse 2018, um, and you had seven seven objects that were behave that were reacting to each other, but also with with um, uh, with the people on the ground and the. Uh, the amazing thing was you would instantly, like I walked in on the second day, and someone said, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is amazing. Like, I, I know exactly, this, that's the one that is nice to, you, to everyone. This one is the scared one, and this one, doesn't, they don't like each other. And then I went upstairs to our, to our, um, to our kind of control board, and I said, like, uh, Joe, did you change anything overnight? And they said, like, no, no, they're, sti they're, they're behaving in the they, they, they all behave the same way. But you cannot, but because there's no other information, we instantly, you know, because the brain needs to make quick judgments to put a, to put everything into a drawer to move on to the next thing. So that's that's how we um, uh, that's how these turn out better than they <laughs> better than they are, maybe. Um, and this was a sorry, this was a performance. Um, Uh, this this is a, a project we just opened in the uh, in the Zayat, um Center for Research into Rare Disease in Children. I know. I'm, I'm on a, this was this this was cropped. Actually, it's my excuse. It didn't translate very well. So it's an object that lives in uh, in an atrium, um, five stories five stories high, and it. Um, um, basically, like, in a, like, an, like an animal in a big in a big aquarium, and it reacts to uh, it reacts to the to the people in the, uh, um, on the different on the different levels. Very 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 uh, subtly, but it gives you the impression that it's that yeah that there's there's some kind of agency. Because of the time, I will go on. It's right around the corner here on on London. Uh, terms. Uh, we found it. Um, we found it. Uh, CFAX. It's an. Um, it's an artist-led initiative to um, kind of promote self-literacy in terms of um, um, uh, um, in terms of like knowing yourself um, better, especially in like in the. Um, in relation to the impact of like uh, the digital on all of us, and um, when it comes to that, like we like either we are, either we're very wrong, <laughs> and this is not needed at all, but we're very um, we feel we feel um, we feel a bit alone with this. So we think there should be classes in in school or preschool where you learn these uh, things or studies, or there should, there should be more institutions, more government budgets for this because I, I think if we develop machines again that know at some point more about us than 
we do, uh, you, you're like, it's like in a negotiation, you're in a very compromised, or we can get ourselves in a very compromised situation. Um, uh, if you are in Korea at the moment, for some reason we have two shows in Korea, one at the um, MoCA in Busan, and one in, um, uh, in Paradise City in, in Seoul. Um, and that's me. Thank you. Um, I'd now like to invite uh, Usman, who's going to talk about his practice um, at Umbrellium. Uh, Usman, over to you. Thank you. Um, thanks for that, Florian. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Kadeem. Um, are we up? Is that good? Uh, so I'm Usman. I'm the founding partner of Umbrellium. Uh, as Kadeem mentioned, my background is in architecture and Umbrellium, we, we work a lot with technology, particularly in cities, with communities, with neighborhoods. Uh, and what I wanted to talk about today, uh, when it comes up, uh, is uh, infrastructures of participation, um, which is a theme that we return to again and again and again for the last sort of 15 or 16 years. Almost every one of my projects has been about this idea of how do you, as a designer, provide the structures and infrastructures for other people to do things, to, for other people to, to kind of um, uh, produce something that was unexpected. And um, just to give you a bit of a background on the way the world, uh, uh, the, the kinds of projects that we work on, this is now no longer projecting for some reason or updating, but we'll just carry on. These, these are all videos. Uh, some of our projects are all about mass participation in the public realm, getting thousands of people involved in building, in that case, an 18-story structure. So it was uh, for one night only in Singapore. People came along, designed, erected, and then controlled this massive structure. Uh, sometimes it's about working uh, with local authorities. We've been working with Tower Hamlets uh, for the last few years and a few other cities around the EU, getting people involved in air quality issues, not just to sort of measure and make sense of it, but actually to learn how to use their own senses to understand the air quality and, more importantly, to tie that to behavior change that actually measurably changes the air quality. Sometimes it's about doing sort of very large-scale spectacular engagement projects, getting people involved in, in urban issues. We did a, a kind of an, a public transportation scheme here where people flew across the city center of Toronto uh, on wings, and the whole point was to get people to imagine using zip lines to get to work, to not just to imagine it, but to live that experience of, uh, uh, of being able to reimagine re, re the city. And then sometimes it's all about sort of de deploying new, new public infrastructure, radically public infrastructure rather than private infrastructure for the 21st century. So the question is, why is, why is, this, why is this important now? Um, fundamental to, to, to every project that we do is this question of how people decide. How do they make decisions? And how can we, as designers, support more decision making? And even enabling people to decide what needs to be decided, if you see what I mean. Now, the reason this has become so important, for me at least, is that our infrastructures for making decisions are clearly no longer fit for purpose. You know, we have depended on democratic infra uh, infrastructure for making decisions. But as we've seen again and again uh, re in recent years, 
the dem democratic processes are largely decided by those who don't vote, not by those who do vote. If we look at our financial institutions, another way to make decisions, collective decisions. We've seen that the, 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 the massive debt that, that, the, that the globe is accruing, we've seen cryptocurrencies, we've seen tax fraud on a, on a global scale. All of these means that the financial institutions that we're depending on are also creaky. And actually, if you talk to bankers these days, you'll actually hear them say things like, there might be an end to the concept of fiat money, the end of this idea that we'll be able to trade using the same uh, uh, denomination or what have you. Uh, if you look at our technological infrastructures for making decisions, they're largely converging on this kind of surveillance apparatus. You know, the kind of smart city is actually not about the smart city. It's about the smart owners of the city who are making the decisions on our behalf. If you look at, our, at, the, at the construction industry, the, the, the fabric of our cities, which is unfortunately not coming through very well here, uh, but the effects that rising sea level are going to have on the fabric of our cities is also uh, being shown not fit for purpose. In Miami now, parking garages are regularly flooding because they're below uh, the, the waterline. All these infrastructures that we've typically used for making collective decisions are creaky. And the, 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 the interesting thing I find is that we feel like we have less and less impact, our own individual contribution, our own individual role in anything. But actually, at no time in history have we ever been more able to influence something that's happening on the other side of the world than now. We actually have an enormous impact. The fact that we do something, whether it's throwing away a plastic bag or whether it's tweeting or whether it's sort of sending out something uh, to the other side of the planet, these things now persist in a way that they never did before. So yes, we actually have more impact than, than, than less. And then finally, for me, the point is that we are actually only going to get through all of this if we figure out how to collaborate at scale. This doesn't mean that I think we're going to crowdsource the solution. Instead, it means that if we structure the way that we make decisions together, we will, in the long term, be more able to make the kind of hard decisions and uh, the decisions about things we don't even know we have to decide yet uh, on, uh, uh, on a kind of an evolving basis, if you see what I mean. Um, and so what I see is infrastructures of participation, at least through the projects that we've worked on, there's, there's, there's three fundamental things, I think, that have come out for me. One is this idea, if you're going to structure things so that more people get involved, you need to just increase the number of decisions. Now, what I'm pointing at here is the fact that it's a quantitative thing. It's actually not a qualitative thing. There used to be this idea, particularly in the architecture world, where you know, you'd have sort of consult, you'd consult the community and you'd sort of give them three options. They'd make one big decision about which crappy community center to have, uh, but they were not involved throughout that whole process of choosing at every moment something. For me, just the number of decisions is more important than just having that one decision. And I, I would point at Brexit as a classic example of this. There's just one big decision, and it's been a catastrophe. Second, when you're doing this kind of thing, um, I think it's important that you're actually building a shared memory of a possible future. What this means is that you're not just kind of presenting something as a fait accompli. You're not just sort of speculating about what could be. You're actually building an experience that multiple people can get into so that they can actually discuss and deliberate about 
the possible future. They can actually discuss within it what it is and what it might entail in the long run. And then finally, by, by kind of taking the, the, this kind of approach, what I found is that you actually get people more connected to each other in making, in some cases, really stupid, like little tiny decisions. But there's so many of them that the ties that bind them and the, the, the sense of accomplishment that comes out of doing these things together, however small they are, because they accrue over time, actually generate a sense of responsibility. People have had to make decisions with each other and um, uh, to, to negotiate with each other and to compromise. And those little steps along the way, in my experience, have actually led to that sense of responsibility for what comes out at the end. And so as a designer, it's really interesting to me that if I want to have impact, I have to actually remove myself from as much of the decision making as possible so that other people can actually uh, effectively take it on as their own and continue to make decisions about that in the future. I'm just going to wrap up really quickly with two example projects where this has kind of taken place. Um, the first one was uh, we were brought into a, it was a new community, a new building, very high tech, sensors, uh, sustainability sense systems, you know, really you know, one of these sort of amazing buildings that'll do everything. But there was no plan for what people would do or how they would actually make sense of all these systems. Uh, and so we focused on the, on the school. And what we ended up doing, uh, this was a three-year process, working with the community, lots of workshops on the outskirts of Cambridge. What we ended up creating in conjunction with the students was a cat named Cinder who's an augmented reality cat that is connected to the building management system and all of the sustainability systems and different behaviors and uh, the size of uh, the cat and, and what it's doing are all connected to different sensor data streams. This was decided by the students themselves. And so they can interact with the cat. And through that, they're actually interacting with the building and making sense of the weather and how much solar energy has been generated and, and so on and so forth. But when Cinder gets tired, uh, or hungry because she's been interacting too much, she'll jump out on the network and she'll go and appear on one student's laptop and beg for food. And the student has to think about the resources that have been used by the building today, the amount of energy that's being used, and make a decision about how, many, how much food to give the cat. They're actually making decisions on a regular basis about the resource allocation within the building based on their relationship to the cat. And so this is a, this is a kind of a, a, a way of getting them effectively caring for a cat that is going to be there. It's supposed to be there for 25 years. I suppose as technology evolves, it'll manifest itself in a different way. But they actually care about this cat that grows and changes over time and so on and so forth. Yeah. OK, I'm just wrap up just one thing. Thinkful.net is a completely different kind of project where we built a search engine for the Internet of Things. And here, there are millions of open data IoT resources around the world. And nobody knows where they are because they only know about one single network. And so what we do is we index them all to make it possible for others to, to find and use that data. So again, this is about connecting people together to be able to make use of what's already out there. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Osman. So um, incredible insights from, from both of our panelists. And Osman, I want to start with you. Um, you touched on uh, people being able to explore technologies and creating opportunities for them to do that. I'm wondering, how do we make sure that people are motivated enough to take part in collective intelligence initiatives and what it will take to make participation as impactful and effective as possible? Is there a better 
way? Is there a more ethical way for people and computers to be connected so that collectively they act more intelligently than any individuals, groups, or computers have ever done before? And if so, what does that look like? So um, I think there, there's loads of things in there to, to unpack. Mm -hmm. the, the, the one thing I would just take issue with is this idea that there would be, uh, uh, that there would be in some sense, uh, better intelligence out of it. I'm actually not interested in what results in better intelligence. I don't think it's necessarily even an uh, agreed thing that can be measured. Mm. However, I think the question of how you get people more motivated, for me, ultimately does come down to this, this question of decisions. How many decisions can they make? How, how, how much are they actually fundamentally involved? At the moment, of course, the decisions around a lot of the, ar the algorithms that are being created to act on our behalf uh, the decisions around all that are being made in some small room in Silicon Valley Agreed. by a group of white males um, on our behalf, and we really have very little impact as sure. outsiders on that. So white straight males, yeah. Getting, getting yeah. straight in, exactly, getting straight into yeah. to, to actually making decisions about those things, and, and more complex, but making decisions about what are the decisions themselves that need to be made. Agreed. Um, I've also um, w wanted to t touch with you, Florian, on how um, creative approaches might help us to think about designing collective intelligence that encourages us to, to, to look long and hard uh, at our ecological responsibilities, and also how we think about um, practices and organizations and how they can connect, provoke, support activism, raise awareness around ethical design, um, artistic innovation, change, and meaningful cultural experiences? It's a short, too short question, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think any, de any decision, I, can see not, I can't see a non-creative problem-solving process, for example. I think, I think with most of the, I think the biggest issue is that the, that the data needs to be, that the data we have to make decisions, either in a small group or a large group, Needs to be needs to be computable by us. So we, um, uh, like, if you just say climate change, I don't think anyone, any single person, understands all the intricacies of what that entails and all the things, all the steps that we should that we should take. So I think there's um, um, and there's and I, I think there's also also something about you know we like we also might get it might get it really. Uh, if like, the, I think there's also a collective inability um, to do that because I think we might we might overestimate our our um, our competence. You know, there's, I, I think there's I think there's very few people in in like in like boardrooms or in meetings. I've never been in one where someone said, "Actually, I'm not competent to be in this meeting. <laughs> I need to I need to uh, I need to go." Um, so I think to understand, coming back to understanding understanding ourselves and our bandwidth. And the difficulties, and you know, maybe there's we have to apply. Uh, and I'm saying this over the last three years, I learned that I'm an, I guess. Uh, but the, the like the weighing of knowledge or the weighing of of competence. Otherwise, the sum can be less than the. So I'm, I'm being told that we, we need to, to wrap this up, but um, I'm just going to thank both of our panellists, and I, I also want to, to make one last point. I think as humans, we've been able to identify galaxies light years away, study smaller particles in an atom, and make great technological advances. And I have every hope 
that through our collective intelligence, we can change the world and that our bigger mind, the bigger human mind uh, and machine capabilities that we're working with uh, continuously have the potential to solve some of the great challenges of our time. So please join me in thanking our incredible panelists for sharing their valuable insights and knowledge. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to, to, to work with you this afternoon. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Kadeen, Florian, and Usman. That was a fantastic way of uh, summing up. We've slightly overrun, and we're now all that stands between you and a drink. Um, I'm going to be very brief, a couple of comments, and then we're going to hear from Ziad Marah. And I'm going to say four things a minute each. You're very welcome to leave the stage, or you can sit there if you like. So first of all, were any of you in this room last night, apart from Ghislaine? A few of you were. So we had a session on collective embodiment, the physical side of collective intelligence and feeling. So I'm going to ask you for 20 seconds to all stand up, put your hands on the shoulders of someone in front of you or next to you, and just give it a little squeeze. And then, and then sit down. <laughs> Please. Okay. Because <coughs> we, we've been shh, we've been being very cerebral today, but actually many of the things we're talking about are also bodily, are about feeling, about using your heart, your feet, your hands, and so on. And uh, we will have captured, I hope, some of the stuff from yesterday. Second point, uh, which really builds on some of the things you were saying, we've had a fantastic series of presentations today about collective intelligence in the real world, in development, in health, in democracy, in learning. But I think in some ways over the next year and more, the biggest challenge for this field is climate change, carbon reduction, not just extinction rebellion activism, but actually embodying that in the, as Usman said, the millions of decisions which have to be different decisions on transport, community energy, moving away from fast fashion, different you know, food waste approaches. Uh, and this is about data, it's about behavior, it's about collective learning. And my perception is that as all the nations of the world, nearly all of them, are meant to be implementing the Paris Agreements, we have COP coming to Glasgow next year, we're still really missing the collective intelligence system to be able to deal with the climate emergency. And uh, I hope when we meet again, perhaps in a year's time, we can show lots of examples which have really embodied all the brilliant thinking in this room today, but applying it to that issue. Thirdly, what's really struck me about how this field is coming on is it's becoming quite subtle, quite nuanced, quite detailed. Uh, we're moving beyond the sort of the wisdom of crowds generalizations to the detail of what kinds of data is there, what are the pros and cons, the unintended consequences. Everything to do with pu public participation we're hearing about in cities this morning, again, was subtle, nuanced, sophisticated about how do you bring people together, for what kind of conversation, for what kind of purpose. And I think it's really important that sophisticated sort of craft knowledge of collective intelligence gains ground as we move from you know, general principle to hopefully impactful uh, practice. And finally, I mean, part of the purpose of this event and the wider network is to have collective intelligence about collective intelligence, uh, which surely shouldn't be too difficult. Uh, that's why 
you know, I hope nearly everyone in here is doing stuff open source, sharing things in the way we shared this whole curriculum for you to comment on, criticize, use, improve. Uh, it's why we're collaborating with other funders in the grants program we've been uh, talking about today, and you've heard some of the first wave of, uh, uh, of grantees. And I think the more we can have a spirit of openness, collaboration, and uh, collectiveness about this, the faster this field will develop, and not having too much that is proprietary, secret, behind paywalls, uh, uh, and so on, and non-collaborative. Because, again, we need to accelerate this field. And that's my final comment before uh, turning over to Ziad. You know, I think if we, any of our fellow citizens watching this discussion would probably say, the big problem in the world today is, you know, epidemics of collective stupidity of a quite an extraordinary nature in almost every domain, uh, not just politics or banking or whatever. And so actually the stakes of getting better at this stuff, of making this 21st century common sense, they are really, really high. This is not a theoretical uh, uh, exercise. This is about trying to speed up the world's capabilities to solve problems, to catch up with the scale and urgency of those problems which uh, face us. So that's maybe a slightly sort of negative note on which to end, but I still feel we're not moving fast enough and the problems are still a little bit ahead of us. Anyway, Ziad, will you say a few words before we move on to some very nice drinks outside? Ziad. I'll be even quicker. As with the big cat we saw in the image, I see this massive glass of wine out behind. And what I want to say is just shrinking and shrinking in, in contrast. But I, I just wanted briefly to um, say, uh, my name is Yad Marar. I work at Sage, um, the academic publishers. And we've been having conversations with Nesta about collective intelligence and with Jeff in particular for a good while now. Um, and um, I was, first of all, just wanting to say a huge congratulations to Nesta for putting together such a phenomenal day, really impressive window into the kind of wide range of angles that bear on the question of collective intelligence. And I think that is um, obviously a massive strength of the area, but it's also potentially a limitation. There's also the fact that collective intelligence is a bit emergent, a bit evanescent, a bit in the storming mode. And therefore, um, there needs to be some way of actually trying to uh, um, solve the coordination problem that is embedded in that. Um, we at SAGE have been sort of deeply interested in how to, working with the various mechanisms of sort of um, scholarship and education, to try and help tackle problems that do seem to emerge um, almost systemically out of, you know, I'm thinking about uh, a quote from this uh, Gary Brewer who said, one of the problems with higher education is that uh, uh, the world has problems, but universities have departments. And I think that's one of the things that we at SAGE have been looking for ways to try and help navigate through and round. And we're trying to use both, both novel mechanisms and traditional mechanisms to do that. Novel mechanisms such as our, we have this project called Sage Ocean, trying to bring social scientists with um, big data and, and, um, and new technology and using sort of online courses and unconferences and gatherings like this and developing tools. But also, it's important to use traditional mechanisms. And my closing point really is just to say that 
with collective intelligence as emerging discipline, a traditional mechanism is called for. Um, so many of you will know that we've been working for about a year or so now with Nesta on the thought of creating an academic journal that will help with that disciplining process. We'll use that traditional mechanism to enable collective intelligence to find its bearings, to work within its theoretical frame, to be able to make knowledge claims that add to a dynamic, cumulative stock of knowledge and potentially really arrive at a, a level of impact that I think we believe this kind of domain really could and should have. So you'll hear more about that in due course, but maybe as we put our straws into that giant glass of wine and sup on it together, you could maybe show some ideas about what the nature of a really powerful academic discipline called collective intelligence could look like. And with that, let's drink. Thanks. Thank